0: We're returning this evening to a passage that I preached on five weeks ago. Uh, the first Sunday of June I preached on 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 2 through 16. So really my focus that evening and the verses we looked at in particular were verses 10 and 11. We looked at their discussion of uh, the concept of godly grief versus worldly grief. Tonight, what we're going to do is zoom out a little bit from that and look at the rest of the passage, and particularly how that concept of godly grief that we discussed fits into the passage as a whole. But as we approach the text, as we get ready to look at that, it's helpful to go over some context. First, thinking of where this passage falls in the letter as a whole Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians, uh, to his second letter that we have to the Corinthians, with a greeting and an introduction in chapter one that goes from verse one through eleven. Then, from verse twelve of chapter one through verse thirteen of chapter two, Paul goes into a discussion of some of the specific issues going on in Corinth, and particularly issues that are going on between Paul and the Corinthians. In that section, Paul deals with the nature of his confrontation. That he's had with the corinthians the problems that have come up and the ways that he's had to address those with them then from chapter 2 verse 14 through chapter 7 verse 1 paul goes off on what is sort of a massive aside uh, and aside that takes up about a third of the letter in which he defends his apostolic ministry as a whole uh, that defense of his ministry ends at the beginning of chapter 7. It ends right before the part where we're picking up tonight. And so in our text tonight, Paul's actually returning to the specific situation in Corinth. He's essentially picking up where he left off in chapter 2, verse 13. In terms of uh, my occasional series here on 2 Corinthians, that means that the text we're looking at tonight links up with the text that we looked at about two years ago uh, in a sermon... <laughs> In the sermon I preached in July of 2015 on redemptive confrontation, I've thought about it and I will forgive you if you don't remember all of the details and subpoints of that sermon exactly. It is worth noting though that our text tonight has a lot in common with that text, with the one that we looked at two years ago. But its emphasis is a little bit different. Paul's going back to the same issues, but he's talking about them from a different angle. In the text that we looked at two years ago, he was bringing specifically out the nature of the conflict that he was having with the Corinthians. Here in chapter 7, I think his focus shifts from the nature of their conflict to the nature of their relationship. And so whereas we looked at redemptive conflict and confrontation at that point, tonight we're considering redemptive relationships. So that's where our text falls tonight in the letter as a whole. We need a little bit more context than that before we get to it, though we also need the historical context of what's really going on in the events that Paul's talking about. Paul in our text tonight is discussing an issue that came up in Corinth at his last visit and the events that then unfolded afterwards. Now, first of all, we should acknowledge, uh, and you should be aware, that we don't know for sure exactly the details of what happened in that conflict. Um, But I agree with commentators that we can do a pretty good job of reconstructing what at least some of the major um, components of that conflict were. Commentator Paul Barnett argues that what happened was that there was a man in, in the Corinthian church, a man who's not named in any of the letters that we have, but a man who wronged Paul in some significant way, likely by publicly opposing his authority or somehow working to thwart Paul's attempts to minister in Corinth. It's likely it might have had to do with Paul's attempts to bring reform to some of the areas of sin that were going on in Corinth. So this man was opposing that, and while it doesn't seem from the comments that Paul makes that the majority of the Christians in Corinth were supporting this individual who opposed Paul, it also seems fairly clear that they weren't doing anything to oppose him either. They weren't doing anything to defend Paul or come to his aid, or really to show him any kind of particular deference or even loyalty as an apostle of Christ. And instead, they allowed this man who was opposing Paul to continue in the church in good standing while Paul felt that the pressure was so great that he had to actually withdraw from the church and respond by letter. Paul saw this lack of loyalty and allegiance not just as a personal issue between him and the Corinthians, but as a, spirit, a serious spiritual threat to the church in Corinth, as they were essentially refusing to submit to one of Christ's apostles and refusing to stand up for Christ's apostle and even God's law. And so in response, Paul sends the Corinthians what he calls a severe letter, a letter that's lost to us now, but that called the Corinthian Christians to repent. Paul sent Titus to deliver that letter, and then Paul had to wait and see what the Corinthians would do in response. I know I at least take fast communication for granted today. But Paul had to wait for Titus to go to Corinth, to spend some time with them working through the issues and reading through the letter, and then eventually to return before Paul knew how the Corinthians would respond to what he had written. We read in this passage tonight that that was a difficult thing for Paul to do. We also read what, how Paul responded uh, to the news that came with Titus. So Paul opens this passage with a plea for the Corinthians about how they should relate to him now, and then he goes on to recount what happened after he sent his severe letter. And so with all of that in mind, let's turn to our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2-16. through 16. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while." As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal or punishment at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter so although i wrote to you it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong then aside paul is likely referring to himself there but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of god therefore we are comforted and besides our own comfort we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is God's word. One of the themes that seems to overwhelm this passage that comes up again and again, you may have noticed, is the theme of joy. Particularly the two themes of joy and comfort that seem to go together here. Paul keeps talking about the joy and the comfort that has come to him through the Corinthians. In verse 6 and 7, he talks about how he and Titus were comforted through the Corinthians. In verse 7, he says that because of what the Corinthians have done, he rejoices. In verse 9, he says again that the Corinthians have caused him to rejoice. In verse 13, he speaks of the comfort he has received, the rejoicing he has done, and the joy that Titus has, all because of the Corinthians. In verse 16, he says again that he rejoices in his confidence in the Corinthians And of course, at the beginning of the text, right before Paul lists all of the afflictions that he's facing, in verse four, Paul says, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So what is it about the Corinthians that gives Paul such joy? What have they done? Is it their perfect obedience to Christ? Is it the way that they've blessed him and made his life pleasant and easy? Is it all the help that they've given to him in his ministry and in his life, or how perfect they are, or what, how much he has been able to gain from them? Well, we see in this text, and if we're familiar with the letters of the Corinthians at all, that no, it's none of those things. So what is it then? What is it about the Corinthians that is giving Paul such joy? Well, he tells us in verse 9. He tells us that it's the repentance. The thing that gave the Apostle Paul such joy and comfort in his relationship with the Corinthians was their willingness to repent. Now, there's a lot that's unique, of course, about the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. Paul was an apostle. The Corinthians are a church. But it was still a real relationship, really a real set of relationships, among real people. And for whatever might be historically unique, or a unique part of redemptive history, Paul is still giving us here a pattern. He's giving us a pattern of what we might call redemptive relationships. And what we see here is that repentance is a key component of healthy Christian relationships. That in healthy Christian relationships, repentance is highly valued. And that as a result, Christians are to seek out relationships with those who will help them to repent much like the Corinthians have done in our text. For whatever you might say about them, they've remained in this relationship with Paul, who's calling them to repent. We also see in this text that Christians are to seek to be people who help others repent. We Remember how Paul calls on the Corinthians and calls on us by extension to imitate him as he imitates Christ, and we see him here calling the Corinthians to repentance and doing it successfully. We'm going to talk about those components in a minute, but before we get to those, I want to spend a little time addressing the fact that — I'm good, sorry about that. Uh, addressing the fact that if we're honest, repentance often does not characterize many of our Christian relationships. That maybe even if we're honest, we don't really want repentance to be a central part of many of our Christian relationships, at least not sometimes, maybe not most of the time. So why is that? Why aren't more of our Christian relationships characterized by repentance? Why isn't that something that we look for, that we expect, that we think of as a staple of our friendships and other important relationships? I think there's two main reasons. One is that many of us are shaped by, uh, whether we want to be shaped or not, we still find ourselves shaped by our culture particularly our culture's value of what R.R. R. R. Reno has called non-judgmentalism. Reno argues that while there has been a tendency for Christians to say that our culture believes in moral relativism, that's not really accurate. There are few people, he points out, who are out there actually claiming that there are no moral realities. Reno puts it like this. He says, The sort of person inclined to say that morality is a psychological projection of the superego or a patriarchal social construct or the upshot of evolution is also likely to affirm an extensive menu of human rights, suggesting less a rejection of moral truth than a shift in its focus. Reno then suggests the term to describe this as non-judgmentalism, which he says is like market deregulation only in the moral sphere, and which results, he says, in The reality that we find it difficult to critique anyone's personal behavior in specifically moral terms charles murray describes the same phenomenon by labeling the moral code of many in our culture as the code of ecumenical niceness now if you're here tonight and you're not a christian maybe you would agree with this code of non-judgmentalism after all it is commonly asked is it really our place to tell another person what they're doing is wrong? Isn't it arrogant of us to tell someone to turn away from their actions or, in the Bible's words, to repent of their sins? Isn't it better, on the whole, to be non-judgmental, to let those we are close to live their own lives, to mind our own business, essentially? Now, if you're a Christian, maybe you wouldn't explicitly agree with the ethic of non-judgmentalness, with the code of ecumenical niceness. But if you think about how you interact with other Christians, even with those who are close to you, is it not actually this code that you operate on most of the time? Or at least some of the time? Even if you would never affirm it out loud. Often, I think, whether we think about it or not, this is how we interact with each other. In any case, what is wrong with non-judgmentalism? Well, as I often find, uh, Tim Keller is helpful in giving an answer to this question. He points out that what might really be at the root of the issue here is a difference in perspective on how much impact a morally objectionable course might have on a person, particularly in terms of how we think about the lifespan of a human being. That might sound odd. Give me a second to unpack it a bit. In Keller's The Reason for God, he talks about the significance of moral problems in a person's life like this. He says, both the Christian and the secular person believe that self-centeredness and cruelty have very harmful consequences. Because Christians believe souls don't die, they also believe that moral and spiritual errors affect the soul forever. Liberal secular persons also believe that there are terrible moral and spiritual errors, such as exploitation and oppression. But since they don't believe in an afterlife, they don't think the consequences of wrongdoing go on into eternity. Because Christians think wrongdoing has infinitely more long-term consequences than secular people do, does that mean they are somehow narrower? Keller's answer, of course, is no. In this context, he's actually talking about the doctrine of hell, but what he says here applies to how we think about the sin or moral errors of others as well, and how we should respond. Because it brings out the fact that if a human being only exists for a few decades, then there are ways in which non-judgmentalism sort of makes sense. Sure, moral defects or moral errors, sins as we call them, might negatively affect a person. But if a human being only follows that path for a few decades, maybe the consequences won't be that bad in the end. Maybe it's not actually worth bringing up. Maybe we should just leave it alone reminded me of a scene I saw growing up from the television show The Simpsons. It's a scene where Homer Simpson, the father of the family, is suddenly, sort of out of nowhere, attacked by a bear. A big angry bear appears, knocks him to the ground, and then towers over him and angrily growls. And Homer realizes at that point that his situation is not good. And he clutches his head and blurts out the obvious, yelling, I'm going to be killed by a bear. And then he stops, and he shrugs and he says, well, I guess I don't need to worry anymore about the dangers of smoking. And he pulls out something to smoke, leans back and begins to puff away before the bear strikes him again. If you're about to be killed by a bear, you don't really need to worry about the dangers of smoking. And if you're going to cease to exist when you die in a few decades, you probably don't need to worry about the dangers of sin or moral failure, at least not what we might call ordinary sins or moral failures, not those sins where, as people often say, they're not really hurting anyone else. In both cases, whether smoking in front of an angry bear or sinning before you cease to exist at death, in both cases, you'll really cease to be around to see the consequences of those actions. It doesn't seem to really matter. But if you're not about to be killed by a bear... If you hope for many, many years of life, then you do need to at least consider the health effects of smoking. And maybe if someone you love begins to smoke heavily all of the time, you might have good reason to say something to them about it. And in the same way, if a human being will exist forever, then you do need to consider the long-term effects of sin and moral failure on the human soul. And if someone you love is heading down a morally dangerous path, you may need to say something to them. You may need to call them to repent, to turn from the path that they're on. Because while a self-centered or morally declining path may lead to only some problems in 30 or 40 or even 60 years, what kind of problems, we might wonder, will that same path lead to in a thousand years or a million years or a billion years? If the human soul goes on forever, those are the kinds of questions we would need to ask. And so while non-judgmentalism might be the dominant moral code of our culture, while it might far too often be the functional code that many of us as Christians even adopt, it depends on a metaphysical claim that humans cease to exist at death. Because only then is it unnecessary to call those we love to repentance. If we love someone and if we believe that their sin will lead to eternal consequences, then non-judgmentalism is no longer an option. Non-judgmentalism either requires us to deny the eternal nature of a human being or to cease loving people. So we sometimes avoid cultivating repentance in our relationships because of an ethic or at least a pattern in our lives of non-judgmentalism. Paul here in our text refuses to do that. He doesn't stay silent when the Corinthians begin to go astray. He speaks up. He writes them that severe letter. And he calls the Corinthians, whom he loves, to repentance. But we don't only avoid calls to repentance through non-judgmentalism. We're also sometimes guilty of the opposite problem. We're sometimes guilty of a sort of selfish judgmentalism. We sometimes condemn others rather than calling them to repent. What does that look like? What is the difference between condemning someone and calling them to repentance? Well, from our text, we know that there must be a difference because Paul points it out. He says in verse 3 that his goal is not to condemn them. He says in verse 8 that he regretted that he felt sorrow over having to cause them grief when he confronted them. He says in verse 9 that what he really wanted was for them to repent. Paul's goal was not condemnation but to lead the Corinthians to repentance and restoration. And those are two very different things. One seeks to put the other person down while the other seeks to lift them up. One issues global criticisms, holds out no hope, and maybe even sometimes walks away with a sneer and a smug sense of superiority. The other one helps the person see exactly where they have gone wrong. It holds out hope for a different path, and it embraces the one who erred. There's a world of difference between condemnation and a call to repentance. But I think, if we're honest, when most of us do confront someone that we're in a relationship with, when we do push aside that pattern of non-judgmentalism, we far too often go for the jugular instead of the heart. Maybe it's an anger. Maybe it's more calculating than that but we far too often lash out in condemnation rather than reaching out in a call to repentance. Doing that, of course, among other things, is a good way to damage others and to damage relationships, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a relationship between a parent and a child. So in our own relationships, we often relate to others with either non-judgmentalism or condemnation. And as different as those things are, or at least as different as they look, They actually have a common foundation. Both, really, at root, grow out of a kind of selfishness. Both treat other people in a utilitarian way. In both responses, we put ourselves before the other person. In non-judgmentalism, we're willing to let someone walk down a road on which they'll damage themselves and maybe others too. We're willing to let them do it for the sake of our own peace. Intervening might upset things in our lives, so we let it go. We let them suffer the consequences in order to preserve our own comfort and convenience. On the other hand, when we condemn others, we usually do it, we often do it, because it makes us feel better. It makes us feel superior. There's a real enjoyment, though a twisted one, that comes with the sneer of contempt. We don't really want to help the other person repent. We want to rub their face in the fact, as we see it, that they have done something that shows that we are better than they are. We want to remind ourselves it. We want them to see it too. In the end, nonjudgmentalism and condemnation are really two sides of the same self-centered coin. And too often we give in to one or the other of them. What, then, is the alternative? What's the alternative that Paul and the Corinthians model for us in this passage? Well, as I said at the beginning, as I said earlier, Paul and the Corinthians give us a pattern here of redemptive relationship. And what we see in that pattern is that repentance is a key component to healthy Christian relationships. That in healthy Christian relationships, repentance is highly valued. And that as a result, Christians are to first seek out relationships with those who will help them repent, and then also to seek to be people who will help others repent. So let's look at each of those things in turn. First, how we as Christians should value repentance. Second, how we are to seek out relationships with people who will help us to repent. And then third, what it looks like to become someone who helps other people repent themselves. So first, how do we value repentance? First, we need to think about how important it is to us right now. How much do we value it? Not just in theory or in a theological uh, exam, but how much do we value it in our day-to-day lives? It might be helpful to start by asking, what are the things that you monitor or keep track of yourself by? What are the things that you, you track and think about? What are the benchmarks that you look to to think about how you're doing? During the school year, if you're a student, it might be your GPA, or your grade in a particular class if you're the parent of a student it might be your kids GPA or how they're doing in a particular class it might be how much money you're making it might be how much you weigh it might be how successful things are going at work or something else be honest with yourself what are those things that you look to now those are some general things but you probably have some spiritual markers that you keep an eye on as well. Those ways by which you gauge how you might be doing spiritually. Maybe how many times you've read your Bible in the past week, what your prayer life looks like, maybe how well you did with being patient with your children recently, maybe how much you're giving or how much time you're volunteering. What we want to think about tonight is the question of how often do you stop and think about how well you have been repenting? How often do you assess your spiritual health by thinking about how you last responded when you were confronted by someone you love about your sins or your failures? Because, biblically speaking, repentance is probably one of the most important vital signs for how you are doing spiritually. I think it was mentioned recently here from the pulpit, but it's worth repeating. Martin Luther's first point in his 95 Theses was, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent... In Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther knew that our lives were to be characterized by repentance, not just at the beginning, but over and over again. That the pattern of repentance was to be as much a pattern of our lives as eating, or sleeping, or breathing. And as we think about that, we should ask again what we mean by repentance. That brings us back to that idea of godly grief, which Paul talks about in verses 9 through 11, which we discussed back in June. Paul lays out for us in those verses that when we sin, we're faced with two paths. One is worldly grief, and worldly grief is about us. It's a kind of grief, it's a kind of distress over our sin, over our failures, But it's a grief that ultimately at the bottom is rooted in selfishness. And so it looks out for itself. It might do that by responding to calls for repentance with denial and self-protection. On the other hand, it might respond with despair and surrender and hopelessness. Paul says in our text that it's it's a grief that leads to death what Paul is showing us is that just feeling bad about what you have done is not really what he's aiming for. It's not really what Luther is talking about in the 95 Thesis either. Feeling bad about yourself is not necessarily a sign of spiritual health. What is a sign of spiritual health, Paul tells us, is godly grief. A specific kind of grief. Godly grief that is rooted in a love for Christ. A love for Christ that leads us to hate our sin. And that love for Christ and hatred for sin then leads to repentance. It leads to our turning away from our sin, not just once, but again and again and again. And it's that repentance that puts on display, Paul says, our salvation, and which leads to the joy of new life. This repentance is rooted in godly sorrow, in a love for Christ and a hatred for sin. And that's what Luther is talking about. Is supposed to be the pattern that marks the lives of believers. It's that same concept of repentance that Paul is saying he is rejoicing about as he sees it play out in the Corinthians. This kind of repentance is the spiritual vital sign that we should value. It's repentance that we should be looking for in ourselves. We should be looking at it more than we look to our career, or our income, or our GPA, or the number on the scale to tell us how we're doing. Because, as we said before, if our human lives go on forever, it is our repentance that will matter still, one million years from now, and not our bank account or waist size. And repentance is also what we should value in other people. It's what we should value and look for in a potential spouse. It's what we should most especially want in our closest friends and family and fellow church members. Because when sin breaks into our lives, and into the lives of those we love. And it always does at some point. But when sin breaks in and turns things upside down, it will be the quality of our repentance and their repentance that determines where our life goes next, that determines the course of our response. And so we should follow Luther and Paul and we should see the value of repentance. And if we do that, that leads then to our second point. If we do see the value of repentance, then we should also see the value of having people in our lives who help us to repent. Sort of obvious, right? If you value money, then you value having people in your life who will help you get more money. If you value popularity, you value people who will help you become more popular. If you value power, again, you value those who will help you gain power. And if you value repentance you will value people in your life who help you to repent. So how much do we actually value those who lovingly call us to repentance? Especially in those moments when they're doing it. How much do we value those people that God has placed in our life when they're calling us to that? The answer to that question gives us a pretty good indicator of how much we actually value repentance itself. But if we know that repentance is important, We also need to know that we need help in our relationships to pursue repentance and should be looking out for those who will provide that. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we need people who just really enjoy rebuking other people. It also doesn't mean that we need people who will just sort of offer us a vague, mushy kind of encouragement. We do need people who will call us out. But we need those to be people who don't enjoy having to call us out just as Paul says he felt in verse 8. He didn't like what he had to do with the Corinthians one bit. And we need people who will encourage us, but we need people who are willing to lovingly wound us in the process. So do you have people like that in your life? Well, if not, the first thing that this text would bring to our attention is that you need some. And many of us avoid these people. Paul, in our text, has to nudge the Corinthians about that. You can Take a look at verse 2. Paul writes, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. One commentator points out that the implication Paul is making is that the Corinthians are tempted not to make room for Paul in their hearts after he's called them to repent. In fact, Paul points out that they're more likely to make room for others in their hearts. Paul, in 2 Corinthians up to this point, has been warning the Corinthians about a number of people, particularly a man in Corinth who had wronged them, and then also false apostles who sought to corrupt and take advantage of them. As Paul lists those characteristics, it seems he's likely referring to those people. Paul is saying that the Corinthians have made room in their hearts for all of these other people, but they're tempted not to make room in their hearts for him. We're often more willing to make room in our lives for those who will selfishly not confront us for our sin or even those who will take advantage of us at times rather than for those who would lovingly call us to repentance. But despite that temptation, we also need to acknowledge that the Corinthians have made room for Paul. They did receive his severe letter. They repented, they reaffirmed their commitment to Paul and so we're given a picture in their response that we need to do the same thing. If there's no one in your life whom you've given permission to call you to repentance, then you need to find someone. Someone who's wise, loving, and mature in their faith. And you need to give them permission to lovingly call you to repentance when you need it. Who might that be for you? It should probably probably be several people. Your spouse, a close Christian friend or mentor, maybe a parent. So who might it be for you? Who knows you well enough to be able to do that well? And if you do have those people in your life, you need to stop and ask yourself how you often respond to them. Do you make room for them in your heart when they do exactly what they're supposed to do at times? Do you seek to respond faithfully when they faithfully call you to repentance? We see in verse 14 that Paul was able to assure Titus that the Corinthians would repent When they were confronted by him. Can the closest people in your life say the same thing about you? How do you hear those who call you to repentance? So we need to appreciate the value of repentance. And when we do, we see that we need to value those in our lives who would lovingly call us to repentance. Finally, the third thing that I want to look at is that we need to seek to become the type of people who would help others repent. If we need to learn to imitate the Corinthians, at least in this narrow particular way, but if we need to imitate this trait in the Corinthians and how we value those who would call us to repent, then we need to learn to imitate Paul and being people who seek to help others repent. So what does that look like? As you begin to, to think about that question and try to answer it, I think it's helpful to be specific in your own mind. In the same way that You may have thought about those who might call you to repentance. Who might you play that role for? Who might God be calling you to lovingly cultivate repentance in? It might be a friend. It might be in your children or in your spouse or in someone that you're mentoring. But try to think specifically about who that might be for you. And then as you hold that person in mind, I want to briefly consider seven things. They're short, I promise seven things that I think Paul shows us that we need to do to cultivate repentance in the lives of others. Let's look at them briefly. First, we need to truly value and love those whom we would be called to repent, or who we would be calling to repent. We see that again in verse 3. If you know anything about the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, then you know that it was not a very pleasant relationship sometimes. You know that Paul had a lot of reasons to be frustrated with the Corinthians. He had a lot of reasons to distance himself from them, maybe both physically and emotionally. And yet in verse 3 he writes to them, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. For all the problems that caused him, Paul truly loved the Corinthians. He valued them individually and as the people of God as a whole. He loved them as real people, not as projects he was working on. He held them, these people that he knew personally, in his heart. If we are to be people who can lovingly cultivate repentance in another person, we need, first and foremost, to love that person, to hold them in our heart. So do you love that person that you have in mind? If not, that's the place to start. That is the first thing that we see in our text. Second, we also see that we need to truly value repentance in the lives of those we love. Not just repentance in our own lives, not just repentance as a concept, but repentance in their lives. We need to see repentance as an essential element in that person's life. That's what Paul does for the Corinthians. Despite everything that's going wrong in Corinth, and there are a number of things, Paul sees the repentance in their life and he rejoices. We need to view those that we love the same way. Do you care more about your spouse's ability to repent than their looks or their income or the last thing that they did for you, the last task they completed that helped you? Do you care more about your kid's repentance than their grades? Do you care more about your friend's repentance than how much fun they are or how cool they are? Paul is ecstatic, it seems, in this passage about the repentance of a group of Christians who don't really have a lot of other things going for them. If we are to cultivate repentance in others, we need to grow in viewing the importance of repentance the same way he does. That's the second thing we see. Third, we need to seek godly grief and not worldly grief in those that we love. This is what Paul focused on. We said in verses 9 through 11, it's what I spoke about back in June. I'm not obviously going to repeat all of the points about that now. But I will say that it's really easy for us to make other people just feel bad about themselves. It actually doesn't take a lot of work. It doesn't take much skill. Little children are often pretty good at it. Cultivating worldly grief in someone else, a grief of condemnation, a grief that makes them want to either defend themselves or protect themselves or just give up rather than repent, Doing that is fairly easy. What's harder is cultivating godly grief, cultivating that inner love for God, cultivating a hatred for sin that yields repentance. We need to be people who think and reflect and work hard at knowing the difference between those two things, both in our own hearts and also in how we speak to others. To condemn is easy. To cultivate repentance is to walk in the footprints of Christ. Which leads to the next thing we see in our text. Fourth, we need to be willing not only to speak, but to live out the gospel for those that we love. One commentator puts it like this, reflecting on the text. He writes about the Apostle Paul. Paul's actions have shown him to be a paradigm of the word of reconciliation proclaimed by him. It's his actions that have shown... What a paradigm he is for the very things he's been saying to the Corinthians all along. What Barnett is getting at, that commentator is getting at, is that to cultivate repentance in others, we need not only to talk about Christ's ministry of reconciliation, but we also need to live it. We need to pursue the one sheep that goes astray, like Christ our shepherd does. We need to make ourselves vulnerable and put ourselves out there for the sake of the other, like Christ the humble servant. We need to make sacrifices and take on struggles that the other person might be restored like Christ our sacrifice. We need to embrace that other person when they repent, just like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Paul's relationship with the Corinthians cost him a lot. He had to chase them, in a sense. He had to suffer for them. He had to embrace them after they had hurt him. But that's what he did. And in doing so, he preached the gospel of reconciliation, not only with his words, but also with his deeds. Along with that, we see, fifth, that we need to truly rejoice in the spiritual growth of those that we love. Do we actually rejoice when those that we love grow spiritually? Do we delight in their sanctification? Do we experience comfort and joy over their growing and maturity in Christ? And if we do... Do we express that to them in a way that they would know it? Paul does exactly that in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul seems to almost gush about how proud he is of them. And we need to do the same for those we're called to love. We need to encourage them as he encouraged the Corinthians. Sixth, we need to place our confidence in God and not in ourselves or in those that we're calling to repent. We need to remember... That in our spiritual lives and in the lives of those that we love we might plant we might water but it's God who gives the growth as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 3 you will never grow repentance in your child or in your spouse or in your friend or in the one that you're mentoring or ministering to you can plant God's word you can water it but only God, at the end of the day, can give it growth in their hearts. Paul's confidence in this text is not in himself. It was not in the Corinthians either. It was in the God whom he knew was at work. Paul had seen the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of the Corinthians. He had seen that the Spirit at work before, and when he assured Titus that they would repent, it was because he trusted the Holy Spirit to continue the work that he had begun in them. Seventh and finally, we need to remember the one who has loved us and cultivated repentance in our hearts. Unlike, I think, the other points that we've made so far, this point is not found overtly in our text, but I have trouble believing that it's not underlying it. I have trouble believing it didn't lie underneath almost everything Paul did, especially in his relationship with the Corinthians. Paul could pursue the wayward Corinthians because he remembered the one who had pursued a wayward Paul. Paul could patiently call the foolish and sinful Corinthians to repent because he remembered the one who had patiently called a foolish and sinful Paul to repentance. Paul could patiently endure the sin and stubbornness of the Corinthians because he remembered the one who had patiently endured his sin and stubbornness. Paul can embrace the Corinthians when they repented because he remembered the one who had embraced him when he repented. Christ's pursuit of Paul, Christ's unmerited call of him, Christ's loving confrontation of him and calling him to repentance lies at the root of how Paul is able to do what he does. Paul remembers his sin. He remembered his persecution of Christ and his people. He remembered how Christ loved and pursued and confronted and embraced him anyway. And so it must be with us. If we as Christians forget that we are, far too often, sinful rebels whom Christ has pursued again and again, not because we deserve his pursuit, not because we've merited his favor, but because of his unmerited love and grace. If we forget that, we won't really be able to lovingly pursue others who are in sin. If we as Christians forget how Christ has lovingly confronted us and patiently waited for our repentance time and time again, then we will not be able to lovingly confront and patiently wait for others in our lives who have sinned against us or in some other way. And if we as Christians forget how Christ has embraced us again and again when we have repented and returned to him once more, time without number it seems, then we will fail to truly embrace those who repent to us. Our ability to lovingly deal with others in their sin rests on our remembering how Christ has lovingly dealt with us. I think we see in this text between Paul and the Corinthians a beautiful thing. We see the beauty of repentance and restoration, but we don't just see it between Paul and the Corinthians. Really, ultimately, what we see is that dynamic going on between the Corinthians and God with God using Paul as his instrument. So let us appreciate the beauty and centrality of repentance in the Christian life. Let us seek out those who will help us in our ongoing repentance. And remembering what Christ has done for us, let us, like Paul, seek to cultivate repentance in the lives of others. Amen.